Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our special uh, bonus lecture uh, associated with my Lewis and Tolkien class that I'm teaching with Mythgard right now. Um, we're delighted to uh, uh, to welcome in anybody who's interested to this, and I hope people will be able to uh, uh, to enjoy this lecture now, and and uh, we'll get recordings posted of it later. I am delighted today to introduce Professor Higgins. Serena Higgins is serving as a preceptor. She's on our faculty team for the Lewis and Tolkien class this semester, um, and uh, I am uh, I, I'm delighted to introduce her for her special lecture today, which is called The Heraldry of Heaven. Um, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Professor Higgins. Uh, she holds her MA from Middlebury College, uh, from their Breadloaf School of English, um, and her thesis was entitled The Heraldry of Heaven. So this is the subject of her MA thesis that she'll be talking about here today. Um, many of you might know her from her blog about uh, Charles Williams called, uh, I, I would say aptly called, The Oddest inkling. Um, and she is currently editing The Chapel of the Thorn uh, by Charles Williams um, and an academic essay collection on the Inklings and King Arthur. Um, she's, uh, as you can see, she's very much involved in the Inkling scholarly community. Um, I am uh, delighted to uh, hear from her today on C.S. Lewis. So I, I wanted to draw your attention to, um, as we go, uh, Professor Higgins is going to have several um, questions posted for you there to answer. So she's got one there up on the screen right now, um, which uh, you should be uh, entering your answer to the question, what do you think of, uh, in the uh, questions box there on your control panel. And she'll be, uh, she'll be uh, uh, interacting with your responses. And of course, if you have questions along the way, feel free to type those in. And uh, without further ado, I will hand you over to Professor Higgins. Hey, thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad to be here today, everyone, and have this chance to talk to you about C.S. Lewis and about an important topic in his works. So thanks to those of you who are already typing in the box there about what you think is a major theme that runs through C.S. Lewis's writings. If a few more of you want to type that in there, I will refer to those in just a minute, because I'm going to take you through one theme of his works, The Heraldry of Heaven, or Sehnsucht, but I want to refer to a few others as well. So go ahead and type those up. So I want to refer to two elements of C.S. Lewis's writing here related to his themes before I get into Zainzucht. And the first one I want to refer you to is for those of you who have read Paralandra, you may remember that at the end of Paralandra, Ransom comes to a moment when he meets the Oyarsa, the Oyarasu, or the archangels of Mars and Venus, and they give him a vision. And this vision is of the meaning of the universe and how everything is interrelated. So do you remember this moment when he sees essentially points and ribbons of light? And he's looking at this vision. He's watching it develop, and he's starting to see that there's this pattern. And so he focuses in on one point of light, and as he looks at this point of light, it becomes the center of the entire pattern. It becomes the most important point of light in the entire pattern that everything else is revolving around it. And then his vision shifts, and he looks at another little point of light, and that one is the center. But the first one has not shifted. So somehow as he continues looking at this vision, he sees that each of these millions and billions of points of light are each the center of the entire pattern. And also there are these ribbons of light, and each ribbon seems to be the one thread that is tying the entire pattern together. So I want you to think of these points and ribbons of light as if they represent themes throughout C.S. Lewis's writing. And I'll read out some of the themes that some of you have typed here as well and comment on them briefly. 
Megan Vance said that a theme is being called to something greater. Sarah Powell says losing oneself and giving up one's personal desires in favor of greater and grander desires that we won't fully understand until we submit. So those two work together, right? Being called to something greater to which we must submit. Uh, Dolores Jenish says discernment of good and evil. Yes, good and evil, definitely a huge theme. Um, Related to that one, no one has said it yet, but questions of the problem of evil and free will, I would say. John Caparella says, the Christian mes message, or specifically restoration, comes to mind from Narnia, the weight of glory, and mere Christianity. Um, Kate Neville says, love and responding to love. Yes, and those of you who are in the Lewis and Tolkien course have probably been talking and thinking a lot about Till We Have Faces and the different kinds of love and then perversions of love that are presented there as well. Great, any more? Anybody else think of another theme or thread that runs through C.S. Lewis's works? Or even if you're not thinking of the works in general, one specific book perhaps that meant a lot to you. Uh, Kate Neville says forgiveness as well. Excellent. Um, more of a literary theme here is perhaps the idea of Platonic forms or a kind of Christian Neoplatonism that runs through C.S. Lewis's work as well. Dan Kinney says death and transition. Yes, and how about transformation as well, Dan? Probably. What about the idea of Christianity as the true myth? The idea that all previous myths and imaginations have something of the truth in them and then this truth just happens to have occurred in history at one point. That's probably a theme as well. Sarah Powell says the rejection of scientism as the ultimate purpose in life. Yeah, scientism, perhaps scientific materialism, the idea that the material is all that there is and is the full explanation of everything, the, the idea that there would be nothing beyond matter. So that's definitely something he was interested in debating with in many of his writings. Related to that, perhaps, is his exploration of reason and imagination, the importance of both and the relationship of reason and imagination. Great, thank you for those answers, that's wonderful. So if you think about each of those themes as being a thread that runs through his works, or to use the other part of his own metaphor, one of the points of light, then I propose to you the idea that whenever you look at one of those themes, you see it as if it's the only theme in his work. You see it as if it's the main idea that he was trying to communicate in all of his books. But as soon as somebody else starts talking to you about another one of the themes, then you see that one as if it's the main idea that he was writing throughout all of his works. And his friend Owen Barfield has a quote here that I think is relevant for understanding Lewis's different ideas and concepts and focuses. Owen Barfield said, what Lewis thought about anything was somehow present in what he wrote about anything. Let me, let me say it again. What he thought about everything was somehow present in what he wrote about anything. So you see he's writing about one idea and somehow what he thought about all these other ideas is being pulled in along those threads or ribbons of light. So from my reading of C.S. Lewis, ever since I was a little child, you know, even when my parents were reading the Narnia Chronicles to me before I could read myself, all the way up until now as I'm studying his works, this idea of the heraldry of heaven or Zainzucht or longing seems to me to be the main point or the main thread or theme that is running through his works. So that's the one that I'm going to talk about to you today. And we're going to look at 
what is it? How does he describe it? What are the particular literary challenges that he came up against? Here's one definition that Lewis gave at one point. He says that it is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. So right there, he even gave several different words for what this thing is, what this experience is, and tried to describe it. Okay, so desire, that's an ordinary word that we can understand, the wanting of something, the longing for something. And yet then he introduces this paradox. It is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. So that right away seems counterintuitive, paradoxical, because if you desire it, then it cannot itself be a satisfaction because the satisfaction continues to be deferred even as you are having the desire itself. You see that? And then he introduces this other word here. I call it joy. So he takes another ordinary word, joy, capitalizes it, and gives it a privatized definition. So I'll be looking at that as we go through and trying to figure out what this desire is, what this experience is that he was longing for and searching for and writing all of his life. Whatever it was, it's as if it has no content. There's something that's the catalyst for this desire, but the desire itself is empty because it's longing and yearning for something else. So it's sort of like it's an empty space into which the young Lewis tried to put these different experiences that, uh, or these different catalysts that would promote it. And so for him, they were nature and literature, primarily nature, literature, poetry, and also music were the strongest catalysts of this feeling for him. And it also has no temporal locus or no time period through which this desire lasts, because as soon as you realize you've felt it, it's gone, because you're thinking back on having felt this longing. So therefore, you are no longer feeling it at the moment. So there is no time period, no measurable period of time in which you can say, I am now experiencing joy or Zainzucht of this particular type. In uh, 1950, later on, looking back at, his, at some of his writings in the preface to his narrative poem, Dimer, C.S. Lewis wrote that he felt romantic longing, at least since age six. And it could not be contained in any particular systems of imagery. So that's one of the challenges that he faced, is that it couldn't be contained in a particular system of imagery. And there are several other literary challenges that Lewis faced as well. Um, and I want to mention a few of them and why they're important for this study. One is the problem of diction or the problem of vocabulary. And there are two related problems of diction. One is that the experience itself is ineffable. So by definition, unable to be contained in words. So therefore, any words that you might use to describe this particular desire or flash of longing somehow falsify the experience because they are not the experience themselves. So codifying it or writing it down somehow falsifies it. Terrible dilemma for a writer, right? Um, and then another related problem is that any words that you choose to use for it come with baggage. They come with their denotations and their connotations. And as you may have already noticed just this briefly in, he uses a lot of vocabulary from the Romantic poets from the 19th century, and even there called it Romantic longing. So that may possibly limit the resonance that the terms can have if he ties them to a specific historical 
literary time period. That may seem to exclude some other possible definitions of this experience. So that's one challenge that C.S. Lewis faced in writing about this. Another challenge is taxonomy or classification. So what kind of an experience is this? Is it aesthetic? He thought early on that it was an aesthetic experience, you know, a response to music and to poetry. Is it a spiritual experience? So is it mystical? Is it transcendent? Um, or what is it? What category does it go into? Is it natural? Is it supernatural? So then also in his particular work as a writer, Lewis faced two other challenges in his experience of joy or Zezucht, the challenge of genre. What is the best type of work in which to describe this? Is it literary criticism that examines the history of the term Zehnsucht or of the experience in poetry? That was not really his choice. He would, he would refer to that sometimes, um, but he wasn't so much inclined to study the etymology of the terms or the history of it in literature. Is theological nonfiction the best genre? Apologetics, doctrinal works, you know, arguing that this is a spiritual experience, or are fiction and poetry and mythology the best genres? So that's a challenge that he faced. And then finally, one of the ways that he tried to solve these was through the personification of this desire and this longing. So in many of his works, he personified the people who feel the longing. So he has characters who are pursuing some goal as a personification of Zehnsucht. And in others, he's trying to personify the object of the longing. So we'll get to that. But because C.S. Lewis was the kind of thinker who thought with pen in hand, the very fact of the existence of these challenges was productive for him. It was productive of works. And so that's great for us that he decided to take on this challenge of trying to describe this experience all along, because then it drove him to produce more and more works in which I'm arguing he's exploring the same idea over and over. Now, before I start getting into the quotes and the textual evidence for the development of this idea, I want to just point out the challenges that I have to face as well. So Lewis has these challenges in writing about it. I have certain challenges in attempting to study this. One is that my study is roughly chronological, but there are a few works that we can't date with precision, specifically the short poems that were not published during Lewis's lifetime and were collected and published posthumously. So there's at least one work here today that I'm going to talk about that we don't know exactly when he wrote it. So that, of course, is a little bit of a problem when I'm trying to do a chronological study of the development of his thought, but I will give you as much as I can there. Another problem is circular reasoning. Let me tell you what I mean there. Let me explain what I mean by the circular reasoning that I'm trying to avoid, but probably employing. That is, if I set myself the research project what words and descriptions does C.S. Lewis use throughout his life for this experience of desire or longing? Well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into his texts and look for all the places that sound like they are that desire or experience or longing. But then by the very nature of doing that, I am collecting these passages and saying, oh, look, here are words that he used to describe this. So you see how that's a sort of a circle. In order, there's no way to get out of the circle as long as I'm using his own terms to define it. So what we usually end up doing here is using his own definitive work, Surprised by Joy, in which he looks back over his life and his writings and says, this is what this experience was at these different phases in my life. So that's a little bit circular because we're using his own terms and definitions later in his life to define his earlier ones. 
And then finally, my study is quite selective today because of time constraints and because I'm primarily looking for places when there's some important change in the diction that he's choosing, in the words that he's choosing. So with those caveats in place about the difficulties of this study, let's do it. Let's try uh, to examine some of the texts that Lewis talks about. And I will be referring to his letters as often as possible. They are a very valuable resource. The large volumes of the collected letters of C.S. Lewis are a great resource to go to if you're looking for some kind of chronological development or development of ideas in his works. And he often used them as notebooks to work out ideas that he then later put into his published works. So in the first volume of Lewis's letters that cover from his childhood up until his conversion to Christianity in 1931, I found 48 references to something that looks to me to be this experience of longing or desire, this particular kind of flash of yearning for something more, sort of wanting to possess it but then having it go by. So I found 48 references um, by my count, and they were usually evoked by nature, literature, poetry, and music. And they were usually written to his friend Arthur Greaves. And Greaves and Lewis became friends when Lewis was 15, remained friends all their lives. And in a letter to another acquaintance, Owen Barfield, whom I mentioned before, Lewis calls Greaves the friend of it, capital I-T, the friend of it. So it is kind of the key word in this early phase of Lewis's life for what he would later term joy or Sehnsucht. So do you see how that's important? You see how that's relevant for this phase of study? That when he was a child and a teenager and a student, he didn't have the terminology yet for what this experience was. And yet it was arguably the most important thing in his life. So he just called it it with a capital I to show that it was this central experience. Now the first description that I found of it was when he was writing about the poems and plays of William Butler Yeats, and he wrote to Greaves, his works have got all that strange, eerie feeling about them of which we are both professed admirers. So right away I want you to notice that although this is something desirable, it's also strange and eerie. It's a little bit unsettling, a little bit alienating. And then he says, my earliest aesthetic experiences, if they were aesthetic, were incurably romantic. So I want you to combine those in your mind, strange and eerie and also romantic. And we will discuss these terms more as we go through. You may be familiar with the often retold story about the little garden on the biscuit tin lid. Yes, have you heard this story? So Lewis and his brother Warney are really young, and Warney uh, took the lid of a a cookie tin and made a little garden on it with moss and flowers and so forth and brought it in and showed it to Jack, to young C.S. Lewis. And it sparked in Lewis a response in which he saw nature differently, much like when you see it in a mirror, that there's something different about the distance and in this case about how things were small. But he doesn't say that that experience was his first encounter with Zehnsucht. In the narrative, he just says that it made nature feel fresh to him, cool and dewy and fresh. And it's actually right after that that he writes that there were hills that he could see far off from his nursery window. And he says that it was those hills that first evoked the longing in him. So that moment with the little garden is often pointed to as his first experience of Zehnsucht, but he doesn't say that. He says that it was the hills that first taught him Zehnsucht and the far off longing. 
So let me give you a quote here, a couple quotes here that are really important for the terminology he's using at this time. Take a look at this one, and we're going to focus on the adjectives. He says, in Milton, is everything you get everywhere else only better? He is as voluptuous as Keats, as romantic as Morris, as grand as Wagner, as weird as Poe, and a better lover of nature than even the Brontes. So that's in a letter to Arthur Greaves. And if you look at the adjectives there, it seems to me that they are a catalog of what he's thinking that this desire is right now. It's voluptuous, so it's sensual, possibly even sexual. It's romantic. Now that's romantic as a literary term, right? Not so much as a relational term, but it has that implication as well. It's full of love and longing and desire. It's grand. It's on a large scale. Here's weird again. I said to remember strange and eerie. And it has to do with love of nature. So these are sort of a catalog of the feelings that he captured all together in this experience. Later on, he wrote to Arthur Greaves, I think I am true to the old canons, romantic beauty, eeriness, terror, homeliness, solidity, and absurdity. These were the gods we worshipped in the golden age, were they not? So he's only 19 years old, and he's already looking back on his childhood so long ago, when he and Arthur were 15 years old, and they had this golden age of it when they were experiencing this longing all the time. Now, I'm not arguing that every point in this list is Sehnsucht. I think, as a matter of fact, the list starts there and moves away. So romantic beauty is probably the one in that list that's the strongest catalyst of this particular feeling. And then eeriness is probably next. And then terror probably starts to move us away from that. And then these are other things that he and Arthur loved at the time as well. Now, he was also writing another letter about some, some forests, some woods around County Antrim in Ireland, and wishing that he could be there. But he said, I believe that longing for them is as good. For if I were there, what could they or any other beautiful object give me but more longing? So he realizes even then he does not actually desire to be in these woods in this natural setting that evokes the longing, but he only wants to long for them. So again, there's that slippage, that idea of postponing the satisfaction of the desire to the next and to the next and to the next so that it is never captured. So that's a pretty good catalog right there on those two those three quotes there of the things that evoked it for him. So I'm going to ask you another question right now. And then if you type your answers while I go through the next section, I'll read them a little bit later on. So I don't have the question on the screen, but just type your answers here. Do you get flashes of this longing? And if so, what is it that evokes it for you? Do you feel this sense that there's something beautiful and you need to somehow possess it or keep it? Or that the beautiful thing is almost a window into a larger world has a meaning and a significance beyond itself. So if you think you know what Lewis is talking about here and you felt it as well, just type for me just like, yes. <laughs> and then the thing, what is it? As specific as possible. If it's music, who? Which composers, singers, songwriters? If it's nature, where? What particular combination? Um, if it's poetry, literature, who? What author? What work? Okay, so you do that for me while I go through the next bit, which is I'm going to talk about one of his early poems. Um, so in 1919, 
Lewis published Spirits in Bondage, which is a collection of wartime poems right after his World War I experience. And there needs to be more study of Lewis's wartime poetry. There needs to be more examination of his works in context of the other young World War I poets. So keep that in the back of your minds as a possible interesting paper topic. But here's one poem, a little snippet from one poem from the collection. And interestingly, in the preface to this collection, Walter Hooper writes that at this time, Lewis had no name for the feelings which mediate this intense longing. He did, however, have the words to describe what he felt. So do you see the distinction that Hooper is making there? He can describe the feeling itself, but he doesn't have that label or that taxonomy for it. So here's some of the descriptive language that he gives for it. Ever and again across the dreariness, there came a sudden glimpse of spirit faces, a fragrant breath to tell of flowery places and wider oceans, breaking on the shore for which the hearts of men are always sore. Now this adds a very, very important element, the idea of heart soreness or heart sickness, that there's actually something sad about this. And this quote also introduces the idea of exile, of geographical separation from the object of the desire. And there are lots of other little quotes in the collection Spirits in Bondage that seem to have a geographical direction to this longing. There's a wanderlust or a wanderlust for the lands no foot has trod and the seas no sail has known, for the lands to the west of the evening and east of the morning's birth, where the gods unseen in the valleys green are glad at the ends of earth. So did you hear that? There's a specific land. There's a specific land to the west of the evening. He calls it the land of the lotus, the land of the lake, the back of the north wind, or the land of Hesperus or Venus. Venus? Keep that in mind. The Isle of Apples or the Garden or the Castle. So there's a very specific idea in his mind in these early days that there's a geographical place that if you could get to, it would be the satisfaction of all of these desires and these flashes of longing. But that contradicts what he said earlier, right? That even if I could get to those woods in County Antrim, they would only give me more longing. So even if you could get to that magical island in the West, that Avalon, that Atlantis, that Valinor, then it still would not satisfy the desire. The desire would still be postponed and pushed off to the next. So I'm going to take a look at your answers now and see whether they, um, whether they kind of match up to Lewis's. So some of you have said, yes, you feel this longing. Sarah Powell, Summers at the Cottage. Um, Sharon Powell, uh, Bucart Gardens, Victoria, the cutest tea shop, Alice Deegan. Sometimes people evoke this for me. People do. That's fascinating, Alice. Um, it, in the way that they look, in something that they say, their conversation. I'm curious what it is about people that sometimes evokes that for you. Um, John Caparella says, yes, mostly Bach or great sacred cantatas, Kempra and Rameau. Mm -hmm. uh, and also they're in your mind's eye at the moment, John. Yes, I'm picturing these things as I go through, too. Dolores says um, that her it is extremely personal. Lewis is far braver in his efforts to describe this it. That's one reason I like reading his words. He speaks for me. Yeah. Um, one of Lewis's great skills, of course, is his clarity in capturing these universal or widespread experiences and trying to put them in just the precise language, even with all those challenges that I outlined at the beginning. Kate Neville 
um, the stars at night mostly because of the sense of eternity they've always given me, driving or walking through a road which is nearly completely overhung with trees in any season, um, only recently the face of a baby that connects with Alice's. Uh, and you think, Kate, that it's a desire for eternal beauty. Is it related to the Platonic idea that there is an ideal of which what we see is only a reflection? Yeah, hang on to that. Hang on to that. Don't go there quite yet. Um, Dan Kinney, I think that what it refers to is anything that comes out and grabs me and I can look at it like an old friend. Um, skimming through Dan, a piece of music that brings images to mind, a small part of nature. This is, this is good. I like what you say here. A small part of it that seems to be familiar of something that I could almost grasp at the edges of memory. Yeah, with that little uh, biscuit tin garden that Lewis refers to, he says that it wasn't really so much the garden itself that did anything for him as the memory. That almost immediately it turned from experience to nostalgia. And we saw that too in the quote when he wrote to Arthur Greaves about the golden age. Very good. It can be a passage of writing, poetry or prose. Dan goes on. Um, it seems it was meant for me and I can understand it completely. I guess it is almost like joining hands with an old friend that I seem to never remember completely. Yeah, does that still have the postponement of the fulfillment of the desire too? Even when you have that reunification with a friend, is there still that putting off of the desire to something else? Lewis would say that for it to be this experience, it still has to have the sense of being unsatisfied and being postponed. And Alice, thank you. It would be people whom you know, but in specific moments. So thanks for all those. Um, so you notice then that in addition to the idea of the desire being put off to a further geographical location or an inaccessible chronological time, I want to point out to you that C.S. Lewis is also using a very specifically romantic vocabulary here. And again, I'm referring to the chronological time period in literary history. So I have another question for you to answer while I go through this next bit. And this has to do with a specifically romantic piece of terminology. And that's the word the sublime. The sublime. How would you define that word? Because I've always been interested in whether the sublime and Lewis's Sehnsucht are the same thing. So notice that he's using vocabulary that he has taken from other poetic sources, primarily from the 19th century British Romantic poets and also from mythology. So we get this evocation of these earlier eras in literature. And another interesting study, which is not the study that I'm doing today, so it would be great if someone wanted to do this study too, would be to examine his diction of longing and Sehnsucht and see whether it's usually coming from what he read because Lewis kept pretty good records of what he was reading at any given time either in his letters, in his journals, in annotations in the book themselves or in other places. So it would be fabulous if somebody wanted to do a study where they take the complete works of C.S. Lewis digitized, do a word search through them and compare them to what he's reading at the time, especially when he's younger and he's discovering certain works for the first time because that's when they make such a great impact on you. Uh, they stick in your memory. So you notice that he's using that kind of vocabulary here. So this raises um, a question with the problem of the object, the object of the longing. There were times in his youth when Lewis thought that the object of the longing 
was those literary texts that evoked it. So that what he was really wanting was to find more books like that and to read more poems like that that gave him this particular feeling. So therefore it was a quest for the perfect book or the perfect poem that evokes Sehnsucht. Okay, but you see what the problem is there, right? Because if those works are the ones that evoke the longing, then reading the works is not the object. It's merely, again, the catalyst that causes the longing. Or it's the initiating point for the longing, but it's not the object. At another point in his life, Lewis thought that perhaps what he was longing for was to be able to write like that himself, was to be able to write works that evoked the longing in others. So maybe that's a little closer. Maybe that's what he desired, but that still is just putting it off to a further remove because then it just puts the longing onto us and we do not have the object then ourselves. And presumably if he went back and reread his own work, um, it could evoke the same feeling in him again. So he's always having um, this problem of what is the object and where is it? Can he find it? So let's take a look at the sublime then and see if this connects up and if this helps us to understand what it is that Lewis is trying to describe. So the sublime, uh, and I noticed that none of you wrote any definitions of the sublime in the comments here. Anybody want to do that while I'm setting it up? Um, Sarah Powell says, something that is sublime is satisfying beyond description because it satisfies a desire you either didn't know you had or couldn't have limited by putting into words. And John Caparella says it's something that is mysterious. Okay, good suggestions. Very good. Quite different from each other and quite different from Lewis's Zehnsucht. Any more? Any more definitions of the sublime? While you're typing them, I'll set this up by telling you, in the 19th century in European poetry and philosophical discourse, the sublime was a pretty hot topic for debate. So a lot of writers were putting forward theories like the ones that you are at the moment. What is this sublime? How do we define it? What causes it? What is its purpose? Where does it come from? And so forth. So I'll give you one influential, influential one from Edmund Burke in his treatise on the sublime and the beautiful. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, so here he's going to give the shorter definition, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. So there's his definition. There's his short definition. The sublime equals the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. Okay, any emotion the strongest positive emotion, the strongest negative emotion, which is it? Well, look back at the beginning. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite, excite the ideas of pain and danger, whatever is terrible is a source of the sublime. So it's more on the side of the negative emotions. Whatever excites pain, terror, terrible emotions. And yet the kinds of examples that were given by the romantic poets through all this time are things that are not actually dangerous and terrible to us, but evoke that feeling. So for instance, mountains, enormous mountains are a very common image for evoking the sublime or a very common source of sublime in romantic poetry. So you may be familiar with 
Wordsworth's poem, The Prelude, in which he get, goes out at night, steals a boat, rows across a dark lake, and then suddenly these mountains loom up out of the darkness and they terrify him. So he turns the boat around and heads home as fast as he can, but he says for a long time afterwards, these terrible shapes haunted his mind by day and were a terror to his dreams. So that's the sublime. Even better if you can get a, a thunder and lightning storm on top of the mountain, that would be even more sublime. Even better if you are, as he was, out in the middle of water looking at this mountain with a thunder and lightning storm, that would be even more sublime. So this was part of the debate that was going on. So I'm still asking myself, is this the same as Lewis's Zehnsucht? Is feeling terror at the size and power of the mountain the same as this longing or this yearning that's evoked for Lewis by the sight of far off hills or a line of Yeats poetry or a strain of music from Chopin or Wagner? And it doesn't sound like it in Burke. It didn't sound like it when I looked at William Blake's poetry for Blake joy is part of the world of beauty that fades with experience it never attracts the painful or terrifying semantics of the sublime so here in blake you have a contrast you have joy on the one side and you have sublime on the other and they are not the same all right so which one matches up to c.s lewis's what's similar between those two influential writers william blake and edmund burke is that for them joy is something small and the sublime is something enormous. Okay, so which one then is Zehnsucht? Well, we have to look to another poet to see that, and that's William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth took the sublime, the beautiful, and joy, and he united them into a natural and spiritual whole. So here is a quote from Tintern Abbey. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. So in Wordsworth, this is something enormous. It's large. It runs through all things, like the great dance, perhaps, at the end of Paralandra. But notice there that you've got the word joy grammatically parallel to the phrase a sense sublime. So it disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, semicolon. Wordsworth, if this were an essay, I would have told you you need a colon there instead of a semicolon, because he's saying that the two things on either side of that semicolon are equal a sense sublime. So joy equals a sense sublime. And yet it's a disturbing joy. It's a presence that disturbs him with the joy of elevated thoughts. So I want you to consider that perhaps this passage here from Wordsworth is a very good one to compare to C.S. Lewis. Because since Lewis is trying all these different words throughout his writing for this experience, here we get a passage that unites them. We get the word joy united with sublime united with the disturbing. We do not get the word Sehnsucht, but we'll come to that in a little bit. All right, so now we come to another phase of C.S. Lewis's life. This was all his youth, childhood, teenage years, his years as a student. And then in 1923, something happened to C.S. Lewis. He had um, a friend. It was the, the brother of 
Mrs. Moore, with whom Lewis was living at the time, so Doc Askins, Dr. or Doc Askins, uh, was this man who came to visit them, and he was suffering from a terrible mental illness, and he was having psychological breakdowns. And um, time and time again, Jack would be with Doc Askins when the doc had these breakdowns, and he would be lying on the floor screaming that he felt that demons were dragging him down into hell right that minute. So that's one side of this, is that in his life, C.S. Lewis was having to deal with this terrible thing that was happening to an acquaintance of his. And on the other hand, Lewis was doing experiments to try to discover the satisfaction of his longings. And involved in these experiments, one route that he tried was magic, the occult, uh, mysticism, just a little bit of dabbling to see whether there was something in spiritualism, theosophy, and so forth that might be the answer to finding the solution to all these longings. And then the encounter with Doc Askins and the idea that it was the Doc's spirituality that drove him mad. That's how Lewis interpreted it. So in Surprised by Joy, he writes, I had seen a warning. It was to this, this raving on the floor, that all romantic longings and unearthly speculations led a man in the end. And after that, when he was 24 years old, there's a gap of six years in his writings in which we do not see these romantic longings anymore. There's, I could only find one brief hint that he was getting a flash of this romantic longing from, um, I believe it was a Norse poem, but 188 pages of the letters go by without any reference to this. Well, why? Because he wrote to Arthur Greaves, Arthur, whatever you do, never allow yourself to get a neurosis. You and I are both qualified for it because we were both afraid of our fathers as children. The doctor who came to see the poor doc, a psychoanalyst and neurological specialist, said um, that every case went back to the childish fear of the father. But it can be avoided. Well, how? How do you avoid this neurosis? Keep clear of introspection, of brooding, of spiritualism, of everything eccentric. Keep to work and sanity and open air, to the cheerful and matter-of-fact side of things. We hold our mental health by a thread, and nothing is worth risking for it. Above all, beware of excessive daydreaming, of seeing yourself in the center of a drama, of self-pity, and as far as possible, of fears. <laughs> That's a pretty tough prescription. Um, but you see that among other things to be avoided is spiritualism, anything eccentric, and based on that previous quote, romantic longings. So it seems then that he tried to banish these romantic longings and to explain them away in order to avoid risks to his mental health, as he saw. So as I said, there's this six-year gap when there is very little written about it, except a narrative poem called Dimer, in which Lewis puts forward the interpretation that all these romantic longings are a sham, an illusion, a purposeful trap set by evil gods to lead us astray. Or, alternatively, that they're only a complex of chemicals in our brain, just, just hormones, nothing more than chemicals, biological explanation for these, and that they should therefore be ignored. So he's in this phase of his angry rejection of immortal longings when he writes this poem. And he starts out at the beginning of the poem that the character Dimer is full of these romantic longings. He feels the stabbing wounds of bitter sound. He feels the unendurable, stealing sweetness. He calls it a disease of longing. 
He hears the whisperings at the heart, soul-sickening gleams of infinite desire and joy that seems the promise of full power. And he says that joy flickers on the razor edge of the present and is gone. So the character feels all of these things, and these romantic longings drive him to leave his dystopian town, um, to rush out into nature, to try for freedom, but it turns, it turns bloody, it turns to massacre. And then the character shouts out in anger here, Why do the gods lure to them such spirits as mine, the weak, the passionate, and the fool of dreams, when better men go safe and never pine with whisperings at the heart, soul-sickening gleams of infinite desire, and joy that seems the promise of full power. So for this phase in his writings, and for this character, Dimer, the answer to what is the object of the longing seems to be, there isn't one, you fool. It was just to lead you astray. It was just to deceive you. All those beautiful bird songs, those beautiful trees, those flowers, those things that you saw in your friends' faces, just chemistry, just biology, given to you to lead you astray. But thankfully, it's not where the, uh, the story ends. And as time went by, Lewis uh, began to meditate while he was going on his walks. And of course he was changing um, spiritually as well. And he wrote to Arthur Greaves that just now when I'm doing very well spiritually, I can cautiously say that I am getting glimpses of it again. And as usual, when he wanted to interpret something, he turned to literature to do so. And so here are some of his responses to the writings of William Morris. And you can see some important words in here that show where he's starting to go um, in his interpretation of the longing now. So he's talking about this book by Morris, and he says, the beauty of the actual world, the vague longings which it excites, the inevitable failure to satisfy these longings, and overall the haunting sense of time and change, making the world heartbreakingly beautiful just because it slips away. All this I thought he, William Morris, gave to perfection, but of what this longing pointed to, or the reason why beauty made us homesick, of the reality behind, I thought he had no inkling. But now, in this particular book, Love is Enough, he raises himself right out of his own world. He suddenly shows that he is at bottom aware of the real symbolical import of all the longing and even of earthly love itself. The light of holiness shines through Morris's romanticism. Aha! Holiness. So you see where this is going, right? And similarly, he says that all that Morris has done is to rouse the desire, but so strongly that you must find the real satisfaction. So there is a real satisfaction then. Okay, now we come to the uh, poem that I told you we don't know when he wrote it. We don't have a date for it. So this is another moment of that circular reasoning. If we look at the text itself, we think we can tell exactly when he must have been writing this based on its comparison to other moments. But take a look at this poem. It's called Sweet Desire. It's in the posthumous collected poems. So he starts out, these faint, wavering, far-traveled gleams coming from your country fill me with care, so they're troubling. That scent, that sweet stabbing, as at the song of thrush, that leap of the heart. Now here's what he's afraid of. I was tricked before. All the heraldry of heaven, holy monsters, with hazardous and dim half-likeness taunt long-haunted men. The like is not the same. So he kept being tempted and drawn aside by things that were like this true longing, but they weren't. So he's afraid of being tricked. Slow-paced I come, yielding by inches, and yet, O oh Lord, and yet, O oh Lord, 
let not likeness fool me again. So you can certainly see how from internal evidence this looks like a watershed poem uh, between the moment when he's thinking that it's all trickery and the moment when he thinks it is actually true heraldry of heaven. It's the messenger who's coming with pomp and ceremony to announce heaven. So that's where we see his new interpretation of Zainzuk starting to emerge. And then as you may know uh, from Lewis's biography, that he took his first Holy Communion again since childhood on Christmas Day 1931. And so from then on, the diction of Zainzucht is quite different, that he says very specifically that it is a pointer to heaven. It is a herald of heaven. So we'll take a look at some of that. Um, I'm not going to take you through step by step each of these adult works that he wrote where he's giving different diction. I only want to point out a few of the really important moments. Um, some works that you might be more familiar with and some that you might not. The Queen of Drum, perhaps, is one you're not as familiar with. Unfortunately, I won't have time to say everything that I want to about this really remarkable poem. Uh, do, do read it if you get a chance. It's a really powerful poem, and it's sort of a precursor of Till We Have Faces. It's a very similar setting and character and so forth. But I only want to point out to you one moment towards the end of the poem when the queen is faced with a crossroads. There are three roads before her, and we're told in the poem that one road leads to heaven, one road leads to hell, and then there's a middle road that leads to fairyland, and that's the road of desire. And she has always resisted going down the road to heaven because she believes that it's the death of desire. And in the poem, she's standing there at the crossroads, Warm was the longing that she felt, warm as lover's laughter, strong, sweet, and stinging, that welled up to drift her away to the unwintry country, softer than clouds in clearest distance of Atlantic evening. Warm was the longing, cold the dread that entered after it. So this is an interesting poem that it occurs. Um, it was written in the late 1930s after Lewis's conversion, but he still has these three ways, and it's still the road to fairyland that is the road with the longing. Much more that, that could be said there, of course. But moving on into his later letters, we see a couple of other interesting, important phrases. He introduces the phrase divine discontent, that this discontentment is given to us from heaven. It's divine because it's leading us on to find its satisfaction. Um, this is a quote that he wrote to Roger Lancelot Green, saying that he read a book and that it evoked the longing in him again. Uh, go down a couple of lines there. He says, I trust I have some degree of fortitude in adversity, but in the stronger grip of sweet desire, I am as helpless as a schoolgirl. The Freudians say all this is a substitute for sex. I'm more inclined to suspect that sex and wealth and fame and wine and travel and all things except God are only a substitute for this. So what's the this? The longing again, the sweet desire. And there, there are all kinds of investigations that can be made into the relationship between what Freud called wish fulfillment and what Lewis called desire as well. Um, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit because I want to make sure that we look at one important passage from Paralandra. No, from Out of the Silent Planet. Here it is. So I'd rather look closely at a few passages instead of skimming briefly over too many of them. And I want to make sure that we spend a good amount of time until we have faces and then time for some questions. 
towards the end. So we're going to take a look at this important passage from Out of the Silent Planet, in which he introduces some interesting terminology here. So uh, the character Ransom has been speaking to one of the inhabitants of Mars, to a Horace, and they've been discussing poetry. And there was a beautiful line of poetry recited that evening. And Ransom asked, well, wouldn't you like to hear that recited again? You don't just want to take that line out of context and hear it recited again because it's so beautiful. And so the Horace answers him, but Ransom doesn't understand the Horace's answer because it turns on this grammatical point in the old solar language. Apparently, in this language, there were two verbs which both, as far as Ransom could see, meant to long or to yearn. But the Horace drew a sharp distinction, even an opposition between them. Wait, there are two kinds of longing that are actually opposites? Ransom's struggling to understand this. Hyoi seems to him merely to be saying that everyone would long for it, wondalone, but no one in his senses could long for it, halunthaline. So you see, we have these two words here. So Lewis has decided to put into his fiction what he's been struggling to express in all these other places, in his letters and in his other writing. So instead of trying to define the terms only, he invents these words for it. So he invents these terms in the old solar language for the two different kinds of longing. And do you see the difference there? So the difference is no one in his senses would really long to have the line of poetry repeated because to repeat that one line of poetry out of context would spoil it. You wouldn't actually get the feeling that the line evoked because you originally got that feeling when the entire poem was performed, and so you came to it through the whole context that the poet had set up. You went through these stages of emotion, you followed the story, and so forth, so that when you came to the line, it impacted you in just the right way. So no sane person would say, oh, just read me that line again, because it would ruin it. But everyone longs, wondalone, longs, to experience whatever it was that the line of poetry evoked when you did have it in its proper context. All right, so I'm not doing much here other than paraphrasing and glossing the passage, but I hope that helps you to see the distinction that he's kind of making here. To put it really bluntly, the wondalone is the longing that Lewis is talking about all through everything we're looking at today. So why didn't he just use that word through all of his writings then, right? Instead of trying to pick up this diction from romantic poetry and from mythology and from ordinary life and then trying to freight them with this enormous weight of definition that he's trying to give to these words, perhaps more than these words can bear. So there are other moments in the uh, cosmic trilogy that we could examine. I'll, I'm going to skip over them for now to make sure that I have time. There are moments... Um, and surprised by joy when he defines it again, very, very similar. Our best havings are wanting. It has a stab, a pang, an inconsolable longing. So we're now coming to surprised by joy. We're coming to this later phase of Lewis's writings here, 1955. So this experience is so important in his life that he puts it into the title of his spiritual autobiography surprised by joy. And so here we get this particular definition that he's giving to the ordinary word joy. Joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from aesthetic pleasure. It must have the, sta the stab, the pang, the inconsolable longing. So I want to talk about the two important words now that we finally get in 1955, joy 
and Sehnsucht. I've been using them through this presentation, but Lewis only uses them in particular contexts. And there's sort of a development from it in his childhood to romantic longing and all these vocabulary for romantic poetry in his 30s, and now to joy and Sehnsucht in this later work. The word joy, of course, occurs many places in his writings as well, but here is where he gives it this specific definition. Um, there's an interesting linguistic history to the word joy. I won't give you too many details, but I'll just give you a little bit so that I that you see why this is kind of interesting here. So joy entered English in the 13th century, and it came from the old French word that meant both joy and jewel, and it had the sort of ordinary definition that we still use now, a vivid emotion of pleasure arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction, expression of glad feeling, outward rejoicing, mirth, and so forth. But then there's this interesting period in English from 1300 to 1483, when there's a gap in English, when there's a missing word. There's sort of this uh, lexical gap there. The Old English word buldor and wilder that translates glory, honor, fame, praise, and so forth, had uh, disappeared from the lexicon. But gloria from Latin hadn't come in yet. And so in this brief period of almost two centuries, there's no word to express exactly what we mean by our modern word glory. So joy temporarily filled this gap. Joy came to be associated with heaven. And you'll find places in poetry where joy is used as a noun, meaning heaven. It's primarily used in the Bible, the doxology, and the prayer book. And then you come to the Romantic poets, and they see this interesting history of the word joy. So some of them will even use it um, as a noun or as a verb in strange ways. Blake uh, says, I joy to hear rather than I rejoice. So I think that what Lewis is doing with the word joy, just a speculation here, but it seems like he's trying to draw together those threads from the history of the word, that he wants it to mean ordinary rejoicing, joyfulness, mirth, and romanticism, everything that's evoked by the romantic poet's love of nature and the significance that they see in nature, and I think he wants it to mean heaven altogether. So he's trying to draw these three threads together and pack them into that one little word. And then, of course, he's also using this word, Zainzuk. So here's the first official time, and everything I've been saying today, here's the first official time that I'm giving you a quote with the word Zainzuk. And this is from Surprised by Joyce. So remember, again, written in 1955, when he's 56 years old. Remembering back to his childhood, the low line of the Castlereagh Hills, which we saw from the nursery windows, they were not very far off, but they were, to children, quite inaccessible. They taught me longing, Zainzucht. They made me, um, for good or ill, and before I was six years old, a votary of the blue flower. Okay, what's this? What's this blue flower? Well, it's another image from Romantic poetry, from the German poet Novalis, or um, Frederick von Hardenberg, wrote under the pen name Novalis. So he um, wrote a novel, Heinrich von Ofterdingen, which is a sort of a coming of age of a poet novel in which this young man wanders and has all these various adventures seeking for the blue flower. But Owen Barfield taught C.S. Lewis that the blue flower was an emblem for Sehnsucht, which in itself is a word for this longing that Lewis has been trying to name all of his life. So it's a very specific 
uh, German term from Zenin to long, to yearn, to desire, and Zucht, an addiction. So it's an addiction to a longing. It's a craving. Um, it's a languor, a longing, a yearning, and so forth, so forth. And it occurs in the title of a poem by Novalis, Zenzucht nach dem Tod, Longing for Death. Novalis uh, was a poet who described a Narnia-like Garden of Eden in which there were talking animals. And Lewis really latched on to this poet and loved this word specifically. So he does use the word somewhere earlier than what I've showed you on the screen here. He does use it in um, the uh, in Pilgrim's Regress when he released another edition in 1943. He used it in sort of his descriptive gloss at the end of Pilgrim's Regress. He wrote this uh, post-lude this afterward in which he says Zainzucht for what he had called romanticism in the subtitle title of the Pilgrim's Regress an allegorical apology uh, for reason, romanticism, and Christianity. So he lifted this word straight from this romantic poet, and he thought, aha, that is the word for what I'm longing for. But really, longing for death? Zainzucht nach dem Tod? Why not longing for heaven, then? If he's been calling it the heraldry of heaven, why not Himmelslust, then, a longing for heaven um, and romantic longing? Well, there's one final aspect of this that I want to look at with all these questions. And um, it's going to have to do with Till We Have Faces, but I'm going to ask you to answer one more question, and I will pull your questions in as I, your answers to this question in as I finish up here. You'll see why this question relates when I get to the end. So the question is, um, what do you think about literary fragments? Have you had an experience in which you read or watched a piece of art that was unfinished? Okay, so you've come across a fragmentary work. What was the effect of it? Especially, can you think of a situation in which the fragmentary nature of the work was positive? That somehow it's being unfinished was more powerful than if it had been finished? So that's what I want you to answer in the comments right now, if you would, please. A fragmentary work that somehow its fragmentary or unfinished nature is powerful. Why? Why is that? So keep your answer short, if you would, so I can go through and read those in a few minutes um, as I transition us into Till We Have Faces at the end here. So I hope that you've been picking up so far that Lewis was never really satisfied with any of the terminology that he chose. He kept trying to use different words for this experience all of his life, and he kept trying to put it into different genres, different characters, and so forth. And as I said at the beginning, well, this is partly because words won't work. Carl Jung wrote that putting a mystical experience down into words falsifies it. William James, in the Varieties of Religious Experience, wrote that the first mark of a mystical state of consciousness is its indescribability. James wrote, the subject, the, su the person, the subject under study, the person immediately says that it defies expression, that no adequate report of its contents can be given in words. So he's talking specifically about mystical experience. So the nature of the experience is compromised by the language that is used. And you see that I've kind of been harping on how so much of Lewis's vocabulary is drawn from the Romantic poets. And I hope that you see how that's both positive and problematic. 
for this very same reason, because it comes freighted with all this baggage from a particular era of literary history and a particular nature sensibility um, that is not exactly Christian, so that can be good because it has universal appeal, but then does that create some kind of dissonance with Lewis's specifically Christian interpretation of joy and Zainzucht as a pointer to heaven? So I, I hope you see the questions that I'm raising here. So there are maybe some ways of solving the ineffability paradox, the paradox that this is an indescribable experience and yet the only way I can share it with you is to use words, right? That's the paradox. So one way, as I indicated at the beginning, is perhaps to personify this experience in a fictional character, is to use a myth, a poem, a novel, a story to personify the character. So you can think of some characters that I've skipped over. There are many places in the cosmic cycle when Ransom is a personification of this longing. There are many characters in the Narnia Chronicles who are a personification of this longing, probably most notably Rupacheep in his Eastern desire um, for Aslan's country. And there are many other examples that you can probably think of. So that's one possibility is to personify either the seeker, the subject of the longing, or the source object of the longing. And another way is to embody the longing but not its object. Because if the object is ineffable and therefore cannot be described, then perhaps the writer's best choice would be not to describe it. And so here's where I have um, a couple of quotes from Till We Have Faces for you. So I know that the majority of you have read this book because you're in the course, but just in case some of you haven't or haven't read it recently, those of you who aren't in the Lewis and Tolkien class. So we have these two sisters, these two princesses, who each, I would say, personify or embody some aspect of Zainzucht. And so Psyche is the one who embodies the pure, perfect, heavenly-oriented Zainzuk, that her longing is all outward, outside herself, that she longs to go to the mountain, to meet the god of the gray mountain, to marry the god of the mountain. And so her longing is very physical. Again, it's geographical and it's personal, as we've seen in some of these other quotes as well. Whereas on the other hand, Orwell's longing is turned inward. It's, it's twisted into a craving need. It's a good desire to begin with, and all along it still has aspects of good desire. But her love is all what she needs to take in um, from others. So that's twisted Zainzucht, or Zainzucht gone wrong, right? And then at the end of the story, we see that they both are granted their longing. So I have two moments for you where we get encounters with the god, but look at what Lewis does, or more importantly, look at what Lewis does not do here. So here's the first time that Orwell sees the god. In the center of the light was something like a man. It is strange that I cannot tell you, you think she's going to say anything, but no, just I cannot tell you its size. Its face uh, was far above me, yet memory does not show the shape as a giant's. And I do not know whether it stood or seemed to stand on the far side of the water or on the water itself. Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as swift as a true flash of lightning. Sorry for the typo there, as swift as a true flash of lightning. I could not bear it for longer. 
Not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. So notice what the narrator, Orwell, does here and what she does not do. She describes certain things and not others. She describes for us her memory of the experience, but not really the experience itself. She does not describe the God. It's something like a man, but not a man. Well, then what was it? She does not describe his face. She says the face was far above her, but she does not describe the face. She says that it stood or seemed to stand, but she doesn't describe the feet. And she's not even sure where he's standing, on the water or on the side of the water. And it's very much like lightning, and it's a tiny glimpse, and it fades away. So I suggest to you that what Lewis is doing in this passage is evoking the longing in you as the reader, but then not falsifying the experience by trying to give you a description that would, of necessity, by definition, fall short. So that the withheld image there is more powerful than an image that he might give you. Even more so in this quote from very near the end of the book indeed, um, that he says, the narrator Orwell says, the air was growing brighter and brighter about us, as if something had set it on fire. Each breath I drew led into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. So you see how those that list goes right through this lexus of longing we've been examining. It's terrifying, but it fills her with joy. It has a sweetness, but a sweetness she can barely handle or can't handle. It's overpowering. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I was no one. The earth and stars and sun, all that was or will be, existed for his sake. And he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is, was coming. The pillars on the far side of the pool flushed with his approach. I cast down my eyes. So even more so than the other passage that I showed you where he might be standing on the water or might not be, um, there's, there's no physical description of the God here. We see all of the impact that the God makes on the light, the water, the air, and on her, but we don't see him, and she looks down. She casts her eyes down right before he arrives. And the next line that I didn't quote here um, says, I think that the vision to the eyes must have faded just a moment before the vision to the ears. Because then he speaks, she hears his words, but she doesn't see him anymore. She realizes that it was a vision. So what Lewis has chosen to do here in this important, crucial passage, in this important, crucial novel in his exploration of Zenzucht is to withhold the image and therefore also to withhold that categorizing type of terminology that he has sort of obsessively sought in all of his works. So I think that this is somewhat like a fragment. It's somewhat like an unfinished work, right? So I'll see what um, some of you have said here about it, uh, about an unfinished work. Um, Alice, you've experienced this more than once with shows that were canceled before the early energy was sapped, right? So there's something powerful about the beginning the energy early on, and maybe if the show had gone on for years and years and years, perhaps it would have lost that. Um, so, John, you say that when you're listening to your own works, songs, as you're working on them, you get an excitement about how good it might end up becoming. Yeah, you know, I was just talking with a colleague about that today, about the next novel I'm going to write and how it's perfect right now. This next novel I haven't written yet is the best novel in the world, right? Because it's absolutely perfect. And then no matter how 
no matter how it turns out in the end, it will never quite match up to my image to that platonic ideal. Kate, was that you who referred to the platonic ideal earlier? Um, the, the perfect thing that's out there, you know, I will never quite capture it. And so there's something about the fragment that's really powerful. Uh, Dolores, why is there something powerful about the fragment? Because my response is to immediately continue its development into a completion with as many more facets or fewer than the original could support. Very good. So just think about that as we close, that what goes on here is that finally at the end, one of his last works, Lewis stops categorizing, defining, taxonomizing so obsessively and instead gives us people who are living this longing. And then he sort of withdraws from the end and leaves it a little unstated. And I'll suggest to you three reasons that he leaves the Sehnsucht undefined and leaves the vision fragmentary at the end. And the first is theological. If it's really a God that she's seeing, obviously there is no way to explain it in finite human language in a way that our finite human brains could take in. If Lewis could perfectly well describe the God, what kind of a God would that be? It'd be a pretty pathetic God, right? Because it wouldn't be any higher than ourselves. And the second is a linguistic suggestion. Think about this one. Lewis was not as interested in developing languages as Tolkien was. He, we only get little snippets of the old solar language here and there in the Ransom works. But there are a few other hints throughout his works that he was interested in language and that perhaps he thought there was a perfect unfallen language. So if there's a perfect language somewhere that is not tainted by our temporal sublunary nature, then only in that language could you find the exact word to describe this longing. Is it the word wondalone? that he suggested in Out of the Silent Planet, that word wouldn't fit until we have faces because they're an entirely different setting. So perhaps he doesn't have the one word here because this book is not written in the perfect unfallen language. And then finally, what I've been suggesting for a little while now is the literary reason, that leaving the encounter to the reader's imagination allows you, the reader, to feel unsatisfied desire yourself. So rather than just reading about a character feeling it, you're able to have it evoked in yourself instead. And that's why he leaves this empty space that I mentioned at the beginning that you fill with your imagination and your memory of the experience. So I hope that I've given you a little overview of a really, really important idea in, um, in Lewis's writings. And I'll stop now. Um, we'll wrap it up. If you have a couple of questions, I can stay for about you know five, 10 more minutes. If you had any questions about this, if anybody needs to step out now, that's perfectly fine. But thank you so much for your time. And as you see, there are many other conversations relating to this that we could explore at other times. So um, I'm interested to see if you have any questions either right now or later on. Thanks, everybody. Getting one good question right now that I will that I will look at and try to address. Sarah Powell, what is the relationship between Sehnsucht and nostalgia? Yeah, um, that's a beautiful question. I've touched on it in a couple of the quotes. So going back to that little garden that we talked about in the beginning, you remember that he said it wasn't so much looking at the little garden that gave him the Sehnsucht as remembering having looked at the garden that gave him Sehnsucht. So almost immediately there's an element of nostalgia because 
since the experience doesn't happen in any recordable amount of time, you're always remembering it. So some of the romantic poets associate it with nostalgia very, very directly. Um, there's a myth of memory that Wordsworth and others were developing. Um, so whether they're the exact same thing, um, I wouldn't say they're the exact same thing, but I would say that there is an element of nostalgia in every experience of Zanesucht, but not vice versa, right? You see that? You can have nostalgia without Zanesucht. You can have all other kinds of nostalgia. You can have sort of cozy nostalgia, you know, for like a warm Christmas with your family, you know, around the fire or something like that, and it doesn't have any of that eeriness or strangeness or longing. But you could also have a nostalgia that had a Zanesucht element to it. So excellent question. Very good. Any other questions? All right, great. Thank you so much for being here and um, have a lovely evening. Bye.